Amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Uh, Covenant College is not a perfect place, but it's a great place. Uh, not simply because of the view or the beauty of Carter Hall, or even because you can get a really good haircut in the first Bell's bathroom. Uh, Covenant College is a great place because of the people, uh, the people who study here, the people who teach here, uh, the people who serve here. And so I have the privilege this morning of presenting the Rudy and Colin Schmidt Service Award. Uh, this award is given each year to one Covenant College staff member who demonstrates Christ-like character by looking for ways to serve rather than to be served. Uh, Rudy and Colin Schmidt were longtime staff members at Covenant. In fact, they spent most of their adult lives serving Christ as employees of Covenant College. Rudy was the college's first registrar, and Colin was the dean of women. Uh, Rudy died in 2005, and Aunt Colin, as she was affectionately known, died in 2016. The award that is named in their honor is driven by nominations from Covenant employees themselves. Uh, this year's winner of the Rudy and Colin Schmidt Service Award is someone who doesn't like the spotlight and is quick to deflect praise to his team. Uh, he had a similar role at Auburn University prior to coming to Covenant College 11 years ago and has stated that his time at Auburn doesn't hold a candle to his time at Covenant. He loves this college and more importantly, it's King. Uh, he, while he may not be known to all on campus, his work is known not only by everyone who steps on foot on campus, but to everyone who drives anywhere near Chattanooga. He faithfully leads the maintenance team, facility services team, and grounds team. And since coming to Covenant, he's led the effort to construct Brock Hall, Andreas Hall, the Lucas Art Workshop, and for the last two and a half years, he has led the historic restoration of our beloved Carter Hall, whose light can be seen for miles around. Uh, knowing that the work done here and the work of our alumni around the world is crucial to Christ-centered kingdom work, he recently stated, I am convinced that the enemy does not like what happens on this mountain. Would you please join me in congratulating um, the recipient of this year's Rudy and Colin Schmidt Service Award, our campus architect, David Northcutt.
the Holy Spirit changes everything. When I was 15 to 20 years old, um, I would tell you that I believed a woman always had the right to choose what to do with her body. Uh, Pro-choice, in my mind, was equated with compassion and love. My logic at the time was flawed, uh, often inconsistent, but it's what I believed. I believed that objective truth lacked nuance and that it lacked heart. Then I met Jesus, and without argument, without research, I knew it was wrong to take the life of a baby. Um, The Holy Spirit changed my heart. When the Holy Spirit uh, came at Pentecost, it changed the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, it changes everything. It changes hearts, minds, convictions, priorities, practices, and communities, and the very world that we live in. God who dwelt with man now dwelt in man. And the church of God was being built in his people. And Luke tells us about this in the book of Acts. We looked last week at Acts 2 in the building in the beginning of this new community. Um, At Pentecost, the Spirit descends and indwells the disciples. The preaching of the gospel comes and the call for repentance and the church begins to grow. The church of God begins to grow with his people being his holy temples. In Acts chapter 3, there's a continued preaching and it's joined and it's authenticated by miracles and wonders, authenticating the gospel message that's being preached in in salvation in Jesus Christ. And in Acts 4, Peter and John are jailed, and they refuse to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So we come to our passage at the end of Acts chapter 4, and Luke gives us a picture um, of what this community looks like, a pattern of what's happening in this community. Much of this uh, new community and much of what took place, just to kind of set the stage and a picture in your mind, um, it took place in the temple at Solomon's colonnade, um, Solomon's porch, if you will. Uh, It was a massive porch, 75 by 45 feet in length and width. Um, In Solomon's day, it was where he would execute justice and king's judgment. Um, It was uh, from floor to ceiling, um, uh, uh, cedar wood, and it it was apparently just crazy beautiful. And it existed, and it it survived up until the New Testament times. This is a place where Jesus loved to go and teach. It was on the east side of the outer court of Herod's temple, Um, And it rested on a 600-foot wall that reached down into the valley below. So it was up high and it overlooked everything. And Jesus liked to go there. And Jesus taught there. And that's where the new community, this church of God, who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, was coming. And they were hearing preaching. And they were gathering together as a community. And we pick up there in Acts 4 with this community of believers. And Scripture tells us that all the believers were one in heart and mind. This is the beginning of the church, a day that Abraham, that Jacob, Moses would have marveled at, would have loved to have seen. And it's all about the people, people whose hearts were changed and made new by the Holy Spirit of God coming in and making them alive. And these new hearts, they led to unity of devotion and fellowship and passion and action. And Scripture tells us specifically in relation to how they viewed their stuff. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There were still likely visitors. If you remember, Jerusalem swelled to several million people during the Feast of Pentecost. 
And now with the preaching that's taking place, many of them are staying and they're hearing the preaching and they're staying with this new community. And there were needs that were coming up and they had a super practical effect. The believers, they didn't view anything they had as their own. Their hearts and their minds had shifted in the ways that they viewed their stuff. They understood that what they had was not meant to be clung to. It wasn't meant to be grasped and held onto, but instead it was meant to be shared with one another that no one would have need. So when there was need, they would sell their stuff and then they would lay it at the apostles' feet and the apostles themselves would take it and spread it out to those who had need. Their view of the world and of one another had changed and was changing. Then scripture tells us that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. A picture of God's grace being spread out to everyone who had need. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And now we're going to meet someone uh, that we'll get to know better later in the book of Acts. But there's a man named Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the, apostle, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Um, seems consistent for someone who's going to be called the son of encouragement to do. But Luke is clear. Here's a good example of something that has happened. This man named Barnabas, Joseph, sold a field that he had, and he brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. But the church, even in this early stage, has to deal with the effects of sin, has to deal with attacks from Satan. And these things can and do come from within the church. So we come into Acts chapter 5 and one of the more challenging passages in the book of Acts. Um, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's what's happening. Following the example of Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira, they also sell a piece of property. They bring the money from the sale, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. But they kept some back for themselves. And the Greek word there is, is they stole it. They're stealing the money. So let me reconstruct what likely happened here. Um, it's likely that Ananias came to the apostles and said, hey, I have, a, I have a field and I'd like to sell the field and I'd like to bring the money from that field and give it away as well. So that's what he does. He sells it, but with his wife's full knowledge, he keeps part of the money and lays the rest at their feet. This is his great sacrificial gift. But keeping some of the money from himself was something he could have done. But he told the apostles he wanted to give the money away. Well, he comes and he lays that, that portion of the money at Peter's feet, and Peter calls him on it. Because Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira were thieves, but above that they were liars. And Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Ananias's heart, instead of being turned toward God, has been given a foothold to and from the devil. He lied to Peter and the apostles, deceiving them and the church, and it was a pointless lie. Peter says, look, the money was yours, all of it. You could have sold your field and kept half of it. You could have kept 90% of it. You didn't have to give any of it away, but now you're trying to deceive me. You're trying to deceive the church, 
and you're lying to God himself. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. What made you think of doing such a thing? I think is a bit rhetorical, um, because I think the motive is clear. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the credit and prestige for being sacrificial without the inconvenience of sacrificing everything. They wanted a reputation that they didn't deserve. They wanted to feed an ego that they couldn't satiate. And it's sadly simple, right? He saw Barnabas and people like Barnabas doing godly things, sacrificial things, and he saw how it looked, and he wanted people to look at him that way and to think highly of him. It's almost like the, the grade school broken arm syndrome, right? I mean, I know I'm not alone in thinking this, but when I was in grade school, every time some other kid would come to school with a cast, a broken arm, I really desperately wanted my, like, to break my arm so I could come with a cast. Um, so people would feel sorry for me and would sign my cast. I'm not alone, right? You guys did this. Um, I just thought it was super cool that other people got cast. So I wanted to have a broken, so I could get the attention. Um, I think maybe in a, a more um, uh, relevant example would be, um, you know, sometimes you have people who are leading um, worship, leading music, or preaching, or reading scripture, and people see them and they, they're, they're leading worship of our living God, right? But sometimes they can't see that. Instead, they see others looking at them and they want to be the ones up front being looked at. They want to be the ones that are being adored. And you see how twisted that is. And I think that's what was at the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted it so badly that they were willing to lie to and to test God in order to achieve it. Well, Peter calls him out, and he says, you have lied not just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Luke makes it clear that Ananias, his death is in fact divine judgment on his sin. Standing before the apostle, his gift made, Peter confronts his sin and God takes his life. Then some young men come and wrap up his body and carry it out and bury him. We want to slow down for a second. Remember where we are and what's happening. I think we're likely in the temple grounds. He's come and he's laid his gift there before Peter, before the apostles. The people are rejoicing. They're caring for one another. They're one in mind and heart. Those who have need are being taken care of. And, and one of them comes and lays this gift at Peter's feet. And Peter confronts him. And God strikes him dead. And dread seizes everyone who hears because God took sin and his church seriously. And about three hours later, his wife comes in, joining this rejoicing body, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? So after a few hours, she shows up, not knowing what's taken place, probably assuming that she's going to be lauded, probably assuming that she's going to be thanked for her generous gift. And Peter asks her a question. He gives her an opportunity to be honest and to repent of the sin. Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? And she has an opportunity right there to be honest. And instead she says, yes, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And this is a hard story because the judgment of God is a frightening, hard thing because we all know that we deserve it. But while it's hard and it's frightening, it's not unfair. It's not not right. Ananias and Sapphira, they looked around them and they saw God, the divine, the eternal, entering the earthly and temporal and healing people and saving people and folding them into his people, making them his church. And there was rejoicing and aligned hearts and minds, and they decided that they wanted the glory to be theirs. They lied to the church, but more importantly, they lied to God because they wanted to be honored. They were willing to test God in order to steal what was rightfully his. And he judged them. He struck them dead. The apostles continued to perform many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. This new community continued to be a place of sign and wonders, miracles, healing of sick people, deliverance from demons, and with every sign, with every wonder that took place, the truth of this good news was affirmed and solidified and the people gathered together as God's church. No one else or the rest dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. While it was amazing what was taking place, it was viewed cautiously by those outside the community. It looks like they were afraid of judgment that they'd heard about for the half-hearted, but were also impressed by what they saw, how the people were living, how they were living sacrificially. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The numbers of the church continued to grow. The Holy Spirit was transforming people as they heard and responded to the gospel message. This preaching of the crucified Jesus Christ died, buried, and resurrected and then ascending to heaven and pouring out his spirit upon his people. They even had so much hope that they would put their sick in the streets, hoping that Peter's shadow would even fall on them, that that might even have power to heal. So the story of the church, it continues in these beginning stages. The Holy Spirit is transforming people, creating the community of God. And a couple of things stand out. First, we need to examine our own lives in light of Ananias and Sapphira. We need to make sure that when we talk about glorifying God, when we talk about witnessing to the preeminence of Christ in all things, that those words are not hollow on our lips. We need to make sure that we're not using our Savior, we're not using inclusion in His church for our own comfort, for our own promotion, or for our own exaltation. We also need to consider how they viewed their possessions in light of caring for one another. Examining if we, as the children of God and the community of God, value the gifts that God has given us more than we value him as the giver of the gifts. 
Do we really reckon our things, gifts that God has given us, that are still His and are to be used for His purposes? Those are, those are hard things in a materialistic society like ours, but we have to ask those questions. But perhaps the most important thing that, that I think we need to be reminded of, something that I think we need to recover, is a sense of the holiness of God. It was a holy God that Ananias and Sapphira came before and tested. And it was the holy God who struck them dead as they tested him. We need to be reminded and we need to recover a strong sense of the holiness of our God. And not because it pushes us away from him or separates us, but because a right understanding of God's holiness is essential to a deep understanding of grace and mercy. Apart from God's holiness, grace is an amputated reality at best. We need to understand his holiness to understand the grace that would allow him to reach down and save broken, sinful enemies of himself. I want to offer two practical words of encouragement. First, God called Moses to take his shoes off because he was on holy ground when he was in God's presence. I want to ask you, do you ever, ever feel like you are on holy ground before God? Is there ever a moment in your daily or weekly, monthly or yearly life where you feel like you are on holy ground before our holy God? Do you ever feel like you should take your shoes off because you're before a holy king? That should be the posture not just of occasions, but the posture of our lives. So two practical examples. First, when you worship in church, in chapel, at hall prayer and praise, remember that you're worshiping a holy God. Think about the fact that it would be right for you to take your shoes off in humility before the God you worship. This is good. Elias had his shoes off. And what a humble posture that is before God to, do, to, to remove the trappings of our outer self and be humble before God because He is holy. Second, remember that by virtue of the indwelling Spirit of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are temples of the Holy God. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Consider that when you are with your brothers and your sisters, you're on holy ground. The Spirit of the living God indwells them. And we have the privilege of coming before one another as brothers and sisters. But when we do so, we don't come as, as enemies. We don't come just as friends. We come before one another as brothers and sisters we come onto holy ground, each with the other. When you meet with your friends, when you sit with your friends, 
when you sit next to your friends. The proper posture before your friends is a posture of shoes off, hands open, humility before them because they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about how practically that could shift and change our community, our relationships. If we remember that when we're with our brothers and sisters, we're truly on holy ground. Joe Novenson, uh, one of my pastors, um, has a tendency to, to say when you speak to him and when you're sharing your life with him, he says, he says, thank you for allowing me on the holy ground of your life. And he doesn't mean it as a platitude. He really means it, that by opening our lives before one another, we open holy ground each to the other. So I'd encourage you, open your lives as holy ground, but also when others open it to you, take your shoes off and go in and love and serve them as temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes everything. Let it change your hearts and your minds that we might all be unified and that we might walk in His Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that by your Holy Spirit you change our hearts, that you make us alive, that you seal us unto the day of salvation. We look forward to the day that you will return, Lord, for your church. But in the meantime, help us to love one another sacrificially. Help us to put one another above ourselves. And help us, please, Lord, um, to remember and to recapture an understanding and theology of your holiness that we might understand more fully the grace that you have given to us. Bless us, bless our community, we pray, by your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take us. Praise God.